Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. Joining me today is the lovely Hearing Crier. Hello, I am not in North America. <laughs> well, geez, I kind of got that from your accent. Yeah, it's, it kind of gives the whole game away. <laughs> Hearing this is your first time on the podcast, but you guys do... Uh, you, yeah, I mean, you kind of do a lot for us these days. You do guides, um, you will be covering events over in the UK, you just did a review, you did the review of Banner Saga 3, which is why you're on the show with me, so we'll talk a little bit about Banner Saga 3 and the, yes. kind of the series in general, and then I'm going to jump on to the next entry in the Top 25 RPG Countdown, I'll finish up with a little bit of a mailbag, but okay, let's talk about Banner Saga so did you play the first uh, first two games? Yes. Um, I played the first two Banner Sagas on the PlayStation, but I played this last one on the PC. I uh, wasn't able to carry over my progress, but I thought that was okay. Um, but the main crux of the Banner Saga is that it's really, really depressing. Um, and I think <laughs> I kind of got that across in my review, which will be up by the time this goes up. Um, yeah, it's a really dim kind of... I, I hate I hate comparing stuff to uh, Game of Thrones when stuff is um, fantastical but also really dim and gloomy. But it kind of works here. Um, Banner Saga is that there's not much happiness to be found in that universe, um, and what little friends you have can very very quickly meet their end if you choose a few wrong dialogue options. Yeah, I, I think a Game of Thrones comparison is totally fair, just because. I mean, first of all, <laughs> it has that kind of very realistic fantasy feel to it, but at the yeah. same time, it does have uh, the monsters. Are they called the Dredge? Yeah, yeah. So the Dredge are kind of what you're running from in the first two games. Um, it, I mean, the main crux of the Banner Saga is that you're always on the run, uh, right? You've got to supply your caravan um, or your train even with, uh, like food um you've got to make sure everyone's happy on the way and you're just continually running um you never really stop in any one place for long which is something i feel as though works kind of against the characters it means you never really get to stop and take a chance to get to know them um but yes the dredge are the main enemies uh they do something pretty interesting with the dredge in the third one which i'm not going to spoil um, but hopefully if you're listening to that, maybe you know what I'm talking about if you've got to that point in the third Banner Saga yet, but they kind of turn the dredge on their heads a little bit. The uh, the dredge are basically the game's White Walkers. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, they've kind of... Well, I don't, I, that's the problem with the Banner Saga. It, it merely puts you in the game. It doesn't really give you a huge amount of introduction when you're first dropped in at the beginning of the first game. Um, so... Like, the very characters of the universe, they don't know a whole lot about the Dredge either, so you're very much in the same boat as them. But yeah, it's kind of... They are kind of undead-ish, but they still have their, their own personalities and their own society. Um, but it's just a very weird case of... You've also got, like, giant serpents rising out of the ground that threaten to, you know, eat the entire world, which probably sounds familiar if you've played God of War anytime soon. Like you do. Yeah, I just finished yeah. God of War last week, yes. actually. Yeah, so uh, the world serpent, this serpent's a lot more evil, um, and he's trying to eat everyone instead of chilling in the lake um, with Kratos running around him. Um, and he's kind of the main overall villain um, of the game, weirdly enough. 
Yeah. All right. Interesting. Well, I mean, it makes sense since this game is Viking themed. Uh, I think it's interesting that they decided to make the the world serpent into the enemy instead of, I don't know, Loki for the hundredth time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, God, if you've got to, uh, if you've played um, God of War recently, you'll know all about that. Um, But yeah, no no kind of uh, real fantastical like characters to be found anywhere but there's definitely magic in that world um which doesn't necessarily help grab help ground the world at all but um no they they definitely do some interesting things with uh, monsters and magic along the way the i was originally grabbed by <laughs> banner saga one i i played it on my ipad because it's, it's okay. been released on every single system at this point yeah kind of and, telltale games <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of a mix of Telltale elements and RPG elements, I want to say, because you're constantly making dialogue decisions that affect whether or not your characters live or die, almost from the start. (laughs) I mean, you can have a character drop dead, just like you'll be confronted with three dialogue options and two of them will result in your character dying. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I. Actually, um, well, it's been quite a few years since I played the first Banner Saga at this point, but I think I've reloaded the entire game um, in the opening like half an hour when a character just dropped dead from one of my dialogue choices. Um, it's it's it, they just they just really do drop you in like this brutal, really depressing, dim world, um, and it doesn't really let up as you're journeying through it. Um, which you know, in, in a way, I kind of admire that. In, in many ways i kind of admire that um but you do have to kind of take a step back from that at some point and you know actually give your char- characters uh room to breathe get to know them a little bit but it, it, it never really stops it never really slows down because you are always on the run so yeah i i can see, i can kind of see where you're coming from uh, I, I think it was maybe Shakespeare who said that comedy is best with tragedy, or tragedy is best with comedy. Oh my god, you just made a Shakespeare reference? I guess, yeah, it, sorry. That, that That's that's way too classy for for US gamer. No, we usually <laughs> hey. deal with, we, we usually deal with niche Japanese uh, role-playing games on here. We don't, <laughs> we don't delve into full Shakespeare here. Well, I'll have you know, Hiran, that we love all kinds of RPGs on Axe of the Blood God. Well, yeah, yeah, that, that is a good point. As the twenty-five top twenty-five list, I'm sure will no doubt prove. Um, yes, when Skyrim is number one, of course. <sighs> oh, don't even get me started on that. Oh my God. Uh, the, but yeah, the reason I mentioned Shakespeare, <laughs> I guess, is because it's kind of a, a a rule in writing that if you want tragedy to hit especially hard, you have that moment of comedy. Where, because you've spent some time laughing, getting to know the characters, and then when bad things happen, it hits twice as hard. If you want me to keep classing up this joint, Buffy the Vampire Slayer always did that really well. Wow, that that was that was a little bit before my time. I've got to admit, Um, but (laughs) it still holds up here, and you should go watch it. Yeah, uh, when they're talking about rebooting that or something, or doing extension of it within the last week. I would watch that, but I would kind of almost rather that they did a a, a sequel. To a sequel. Be perfectly honest, yeah. Oh, one that's one that's kind of set in the current day. Maybe, maybe like the original characters can make appearances, but we have um, different slayers or follows different characters, or we follow the characters when they're adults, kind of like Veronica Mars. When, when was the first? When was Buffy actually made? 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer started in 1997. Oh my god. And went till... 2002 it feels like a late 90s early 2000s thing i know it really Uh, does it really does but i love it for that reason because (laughs) while you're still very 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 young that was exactly when i was in high school (laughs) so for me that's like being teleported back to a very specific moment in time and it gives me ridiculous nostalgia so I, it's pretty cheesy in some respects uh and no, maybe it. it'll be harder to understand if you weren't in that moment but at the same time like there are certain story moments that really hold up and i i thought that it really often nailed the mixing the dark and the light elements so getting back to banner saga <laughs> <laughs> yeah we kind of got sidetracked there <laughs> yeah getting back to banner saga i can totally see like if it's just unrelentingly grim all the time then it becomes that eventually you're like, my God, this is soul sucking. I need a break. I need to laugh. Yeah, yeah. I, actually, that's one of the uh, that's one of the things. I I didn't have a lot of time to do this review, admittedly, as much as I hate to admit that. Um, and so I was playing it nonstop, and maybe that's what made it more crushing as well. But there were times where I just had to walk away from my computer and be like, okay, just breathe for a minute um and the combat actually the combat is grueling and intense um but you don't always have to win the battles in the banner saga it's not instantly game over if all your warriors die um on the field and as you go further on through the banner saga 3 you start to realize that actually okay they the developers behind this don't actually intend for me to win many of these fights um, just because they end up piling on and piling on and piling on enemies, um, enemy after enemy after you. Um, but it's okay if you lose them because it doesn't really have much of an effect on the entire game. It's not as if all your warriors die there. Um, all these characters that you've been with just suddenly drop dead as a result of being defeated on the battlefield. You know, like the the train keeps moving afterwards, and so you don't have to win these battles, and they're not designed for you to for them to be won down the road in the third banner saga. Um, And that only makes the game even more depressing when you're when you just feel as the deck is so stacked against you. Um, You know, you see your characters get absolutely battered and bruised on the field of battle. And they do this really weird thing where they, um, whenever they're really injured, they like st- they struggle to stand up, um, and it really makes you feel for them. In fact, it makes you feel for them much more than the dialogue does at all throughout the game. Um, and it really hits home that, like, okay, these are actual people, and these are people's lives that I'm dealing with here, even if you know it is set in the same world as where a giant serpent is just trying to destroy reality. Um, but no, the the combat is it is kind of a high point uh, for me, even if it, it kind of picks up where the dialogue somewhat falters, to be honest, and being a, a little one note. As you were talking, I was thinking a bit about Final Fantasy Tactics oh, okay. and how Final Fantasy Tactics is kind of similar in the sense that it's this dark, I mean, it's anime, but it's a fairly dark uh tale of medieval politics and that kind of thing okay but even though the ending is preordained and actually pretty dark it yes doesn't make you feel hopeless in the combat okay it, i mean if anything you're crazy overpowered in the combat <laughs> well you're not crazy overpowered here. 
when you're floating <laughs> around with like a sword that kills everybody in one shot, it's hard to feel the maybe necessarily impact of the game on the battlefield. Yeah. I mean, you still feel it through the actual story. Like the story yes. does a really good job. But I, I think it's interesting that Banner Saga 3 mixes those two elements. What I'm wondering though is, is it a good thing necessarily to take away that feeling of kind of agency, that feeling of I can make my own destiny on the battlefield and instead kind of make things feel hopeless, like it's just grinding you down, grinding you down, grinding you down. That is a really good point. Um, because one of one of the key features that they've done away with um, in this game, which I really wasn't a fan of, was... Um, so before, in the previous Banasaka games, you had this uh, like supply meter, this resources meter, and it would constantly be ticking down as your caravan uh, moved on throughout the fields. So, like, you would feel need every now and then to stop and let everyone rest. Um, but you always had this food counter that was ticking down. Um, and that's what really gave you agencies to keep pushing forward. And in, and in this third one, they've just, they've done away with it. So you don't have any, so you don't feel for ev- everyone as they're moving along, as this resource counter is slowly ticking down. And, you know, in the previous games, people could starve to death if that meter got too low, but it's just not there. Um, so if anything, you can just be in the combat. You can be like, okay, so I'm going to lose this fight, but it'll be okay because everyone will keep moving afterwards and there's no, com- there's nothing working against me outside of the combat. Like, sure, characters can die through dialogue choices, but then we go back to that feeling of, well, actually, I haven't really known these characters at all all that well through this game. Um, and so, you know, it's not giving me much agency to keep them alive, let alone save the entire world in which this game is taking place. Um, in which, you know, that's the kind of real, the real kind of message that's tried to hammer home through this is that this whole series, in this whole series, the world is ending. You know, the stakes are really high for all these characters. Um, but as, as actually I mentioned in my review, everyone just, everyone's still in fighting in this game no one it's not like anyone really cares that much um apart from this one group that are on this suicide mission um to save the world everyone's still back in the city like infighting because everyone kind of goes their separate ways at the end of the second game um and it's it's almost like no no one really cares apart from this team that are on this heroic mission to save the world um, and they just keep, and it's this group um, that keep on moving towards saving the end of saving the world, and kind of they're kind of it's kind of implied from the beginning that they're going to kill the kill this massive serpent. I mean, things kind of transpire from there, which I won't spoil. Um, but that's really where this game falters, and it doesn't give you an agency to win in the combat because you're like, okay, well, I can just see this through, and I know everyone will come out unscathed the other side. And I also don't have that food meter, that resource meter. Um, so that doesn't matter. You know, I can't, I can't gain anything through combat. So what's the point in even trying? And um, that's really, that's really an unfortunate move, um, to be honest. I sort of feel like the combat is almost vestigial in some ways, uh, because so much of the emphasis is put on the actual narrative. Uh, they, they don't want it to just be a graphic novel. And, no. and so the reason we're talking about it on this podcast is, I mean, it is a tactical RPG in the it sense is, that is. you have characters with stats who you can promote, who level mm-hmm. up, and you're choosing your party and everything. Yes. And you have a lot of 
agency over how they grow, but the main focus of the game is following these characters as they're talking to one another, yes. choosing the dialogue choices, making those telltale style choices. Yeah. And I don't want to say that it's tacked on. I, I think that it's well integrated, but it's almost... It, it, you can tell where the emphasis is. You can tell where the priority is. Yeah, you do. You do kind of have to wonder how much uh, how much of each has been given enough time and a focus during development, um, because it's very clear to me that the combat hasn't necessarily evolved throughout the series. Like ob- obviously, the dialogue is always changing, and that will have gotten the most focus from installment to installment, but. All of the elements in the combat have been the same since day one. Um, you know, you move a couple of tiles, you see if you're in range from your enemy, you see if you can land a blow to either their armor or directly to their health, and no- nothing has really changed since the first Banner Saga. It's it's all kind of been very much the same. So by the time it gets down to this third game, where you're really grinding through the motions, um, it can start to feel a little tiresome yeah i would say that the combat is ultimately probably the weakest part of the game uh yes agreed this the story and the graphics like the art style is maybe why you play this game because it is beautiful i I like the art style it has that kind of early 80s uh don bluth look (laughs) kind of like dragon's lair almost yeah actually um uh former colleague (laughs) chris brown always likes to point out how um how like just colorful and beautiful the title screens are for this game and then yeah i've got to say but that's really what drew me into this game at first it wasn't the combat um and i didn't know anything about the story it was just the way the game looked and it really did look unique i mean it still does it still does um even as portions of the entire world have just turned black um from you know decaying and dying it still looks really unique and it doesn't look any like anything else out there at all I think the moment that grabbed me was when you would see the long column of people marching with the big yes. banner flying yeah, out behind yeah. them. That was always the moment that I felt most invested in the game. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's which is kind of what's a shame about this third game because I'd agree with you. That is what I felt most invested in about the previous two games, but that that is gone um from this game largely gone i mean half our characters literally just spend the entire game in a city um for this game so and actually i kind of opened my i kind of opened my review talking about this you know if if the previous two games were a journey where you were following this uh, just trail of people with this banner hoisted high above their heads um like They've already reached the conclusion by the time they've already reached their destination by the time this third game rolls around, and it's really kind of just sitting there, kind of waiting out the end of the world. So it's it's really unfortunate that kind of um, you know this trudging on through this scenery around you is, is just gone. It's just gone from this third game, and it's really disappointing. So ultimately, I, I think it's a given that because Banner Saga Three is kind of dependent on the events that come before is, uh, yes. you definitely want to start with the original banner so oh yeah yeah and i'm uh, you know i haven't looked up the price but i'm sure you can get them cheap i'm sure yeah, you, can you can get, get the entire you can get the entire thing on switch like all three versions oh wow christ i forgot it was on switch everything's on switch nowadays Fortnite yes i know it's switch. great yeah i love wow. it 
even oh, though I barely God. play my Switch, it's actually kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, I'm still amazed to play Hollow Knight on my Switch. Ever since, oh yeah, no, I play Hollow Knight on my Switch. Oh God! But beautiful. ever since I moved, um, I've just been playing a lot more on my TV because my TV is a lot closer uh, to my couch <laughs> now, so I'll, it doesn't feel like I'm straining my eyes to look at the games. I'd, I'd, well, I would too if I had one of them big fancy 4K TVs. Yeah, so you can get the Banner Saga complete on PS4, Xbox One, and PC. I don't know if it's out on Switch yet, but... No, I, as far as I know, I think only the third one is out on Switch. Um, but your, de- your decisions in the previous two games definitely have lasting impacts on this one, especially in the way that it kicks off. Yeah, and I think... So ultimately, do you think it's worth playing all three of these games? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, because as as kind of disappointing as uh, this third one is, the previous two were really, really standout games. Um, like if you want to if you want to compare it to a Telltale game, that's fair. But it's better than any Telltale game that's out there. The I first think that's two. fair. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can make that comparison fine. But those first two entries are just gripping, absolutely gripping. All right, Hiran. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you can get the Banner Saga trilogy on Xbox One, PS4, PC. You can get it pretty much freaking anywhere at this point. So yeah, anywhere. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks um, for having me. Yeah, and make sure to go check out his review over on the site. Hiran, as I mentioned, does a lot of stuff for us. I he do. does news. He does. You can. You'll probably see his names in the guides at a certain point. And, all, all over the guides. And we'll have you back on the show, Hiran, because oh, I, I mean, much. I think you. You play a lot of games. So. I do. I play a lot of games for my job. You you bring a fresh perspective and a fun accent <laughs> to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Okay, we're continuing on with our top 25 RPG countdown. And this one is number 20. Let's listen to a quick clip from this one. Yes, the game that we've chosen for number 20 is probably the most recent game on this list to have come out, and that is Divinity Original Sin, which came out 2014. Joining me to talk about this modern classic is Jason Wilson from Gamespeed and Kevin Van Ord, who is somewhere in the hinterlands of Europe these days. Hello! (laughs) And these two really freaking love Divinity Original Sin, and, I mean, I can understand why. It, it's a pretty remarkable game. It's so remarkable, in fact, that Kevin actually ended up going to work for Larian Studios for the sequel. Uh, yeah. Um, who would have thought back uh, when I played the first game that I would end up here? Um, but uh, so it goes. So it goes. And uh, it's it's pretty awesome to, to be with them. So. so you're still with Larian Studios doing the writing for uh, their various projects, whatever they might be. Yes, for the things, whatever they might be, I am absolutely still with Larian. In fact, uh, as we record, so so I work at the the, the main office in uh, Ghent, Belgium. But uh, actually, this week I am at the Dublin office, so I am recording with you uh, in my hotel room in Dublin. <laughs> so good times. 
You know, it's amazing the fact that they have a second office, considering the history of Larian and how this, you know, this poor company was begging across Europe at one point to, uh, to, to survive. And now it's probably one of the most highly regarded, if not highly regarded RPG studio in all of Europe. Yeah, we seem to be doing pretty well. Um, all of the, uh, the, you know, the troubled times were, were before my time, of course. Uh, but, uh, as far as I know, we're doing pretty good. Okay. We're doing pretty good now. So may I ask a question about that, Kevin? Yeah. So, so w- with your coworkers who are there from, from, from the bad times when, when they were doing so much work from hire and when they were begging and getting screwed by publishers left and right, is, is there like battle scars are, are people like so worried that something bad's going to happen or have they gotten over it? I mean, none of that stuff seems to linger Certainly, um, and and uh, I work alongside people that have been at Larian from the beginning, beginning. Um, so of course the company's run by Sven Vinka, who is the the founder and the CEO and the everything about Larian. And one thing that's sort of inspiring about him is that he's uber confident, um, and that kind of strikes confidence, I think, in the rest of us. So um, there, there are definitely scars. There are definitely people who, uh, you know, who uh, I, who remember those times and uh, don't necessarily remember all of those times fondly. Um, but it doesn't seem to carry over now, uh, as as far as I can tell. The you know, it, it's it's a wonderful place to be, and nobody seems to ever uh, be in a state where it's like, oh my god, oh my god, what's going to happen next? It, it's well, before uh, Kevin joined Larian, he was the reviews editor over at GameSpot in Another Life, and and he reviewed the original Divinity, Original Sin, and I, I think this line really jumps out. He says, to play Divinity, Original Sin is to fall in love with role-playing games all over again, which is, I mean, that is really high praise. Yeah, and I certainly uh, stand by those words now even uh and and keep in mind that was a year that was the year uh dragon age inquisition came out that year Um, yes and it was a it was a game that i actually you know i i loved dragon age inquisition maybe against uh all odds i know it's it's not the most popular game in that series but uh you know it was it was a good year for rpgs and yet this was the one that, that really captured me and it was my personal game of the year that year as well so yeah, you guys give it PC Game of the Year. Kevin, Kevin's always been ahead of the game when it comes to recognizing <laughs> games that are really good because you loved Demon Souls back in the day as well. Demon but. Souls was uh, was my baby. All uh, three of us loved Demon Souls. Yeah, they sure did. <laughs> yeah, and Against we gave all it Game of the Year at GameSpot. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it was, that was remarkable. It was pretty gutsy, um, and yet it it sort of worked out. Um, I was the big champion, and of course, there were lots of fantastic games that came out that year too. Uncharted Two, Assassin's Creed Two, Sk- yeah, Skyrim. Skyrim was actually Dark, and oh, I only sorry, remember that. Two thousand eleven, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I only remember that because at Gamespot we wrongly um, gave Game of the Year to Skyrim over Dark. Ooh. Ooh. So what you're saying is that you don't think Skyrim <laughs> should be rated number one on this list? Uh, no. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I don't a think spoiler that's alert, it's say. not gonna be <laughs> oh, oh, well, there you go <laughs> alright, so uh, Divinity Original Sin, it's not the first game in the series, in fact it's a series that started in 2002 with Divine Divinity and it went on to go with Beyond Divinity, if I'm not mistaken there were a couple of spin-offs in there as well 
and Vinny the Original Sin finally came out in 2014. Uh, you know, going through my research for this, I found a really funny story. Hmm. Um, so the reason, uh, in, in an interview, uh, Sven was talking about why it had the, the first game was Divine Divinity, is because the publisher they're working with. Um, from Russia had put out sudden strike and it had done really well. And so they decided that every name had to be alliterative and they wanted to call it something else, but um, they had to call it something with two D's to make it work. Divine divinity. I mean, a little repetitive there. I got to say <laughs> just a bit, <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> Did you ever play divine divinity, uh, Kevin? Uh, yeah. Um, I played all the divinity games, uh, well before uh i was gonna say is that the test when they're hiring you you got to play them all no uh actually no but uh what's interesting is 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 i actually remember where i was what i was doing when i bought divine divinity at an electronics boutique at tyson's corner mall in virginia that's very specific (laughs) yeah it's weird that i remember that and i remember it because not only because people were making fun of the name at the time i had just read the GameSpot review um, and it rated very highly at GameSpot, and that was an exciting thing, you know, in those days, you know, you kind of ran to Electronics Boutique to buy this new game that I'd never even heard of, and it had this very striking box art with the, the angel with the wings on the front, and uh, I went to the food court, and I ate while I opened the box and rummaged through the things, as one did back in those days, uh, to look at the manual and so on, so uh, that I, I loved the series from the very beginning. And uh, who, who would have thought even then that I'd be at GameSpot or reviewing games for a living, let alone working for that company much, much later? So it was an action RPG that kind of more closely resembled Diablo, which uh, though it had branching conversation trees and that sort of thing, which I find interesting given that, I mean, Divinity Original Sin is, I mean, a lot of it is real time, but then when you actually get into combat, it's more turn-based. So it's ultimately very different from Divinity Original Sin. Oh yes, uh, original sin's very different from uh, divine divinity and and beyond divinity for sure. Um, but that's one of the reasons I lo- things I loved about divine divinity was the sort of combination of Baldur's Gate plus Diablo kind of thing. It worked. It worked really well. Yes, and this was kind of the heyday for isometric RPGs. I mean, uh, maybe more toward the end of the heyday because if I recall correctly. Uh, stuff like Fallout and such were starting to peel out, peter out. Black Isle Studios was petering out, and Interplay was having its fair share of troubles around that time, uh, which was really too bad. Uh, people were moving away from isometric RPGs. But fast forward to 2013, and Larian Studios had been working on Divinity Original Sin for the PC and ran out of money. And so they went to Kickstarter, which at this time was uh, we were about a year into the the big moment for crowdfunding games. We were a year out from Pillars of Eternity getting crowdfunded and Double Fine kicking everything out and everything. And uh, the subsequent Kickstarter campaign brought in over a, a million dollars and we were able to get... And it was a one of those rare crowdfunding success stories. What was remarkable about it was that, you know, they wanted 400,000 and they got almost a million. They got 944,000. They got almost 20,000 people backing it. And it really showed, along with a couple others in the RPG space, Obsidian and Exile, 
that that you could do this here and that these old games really still had old style games excuse me had this following and people still wanted them and what's remarkable you know all three studios put out good games yeah uh, and when it came out it was remarkably polished uh for a game that was crowdfunded by a relatively small studio it was really pretty really nice particle effects and that sort of thing um Ultimate, uh, a little bit later in 2015, they released an enhanced edition uh, for the PS4 and the Xbox One, which really overhauled a lot of it. Better graphics, sound, full voice acting, new content, updated story, and a new ending. Did you guys ultimately get a chance to play the enhanced edition? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Not to the end. Uh-huh. Not to the end, but I remember playing the enhanced edition uh, co-op on my PS4 with, with our reviewer. Oh, I, I I sort of loved it, and that's how I played it when when the uh, enhanced edition came out. I, uh, I I got it on console, and we were playing it together. And I think what was sort of amazing about that um, about that game coming to console, because of course we don't really think of these uh, complex uh, sort of top town games as being console friendly, um, but there were so many interesting ways that Larian dealt with the interface, dealt with how you. Uh, how you use the controller to, to select items. Um, one of the coolest things, for example, was you you held a button to sort of uh, fan out a circle around you, and then you could choose from any of the interactable objects that were in that radius, um, which seems like such a simple thing, but it, it made the game so incredibly playable. Other cool things were like the ability to listen in on conversations that your co-op partner was having, um, it just it worked out really well. It was so much more playable than you'd expect a, a game of that complexity to to be using using a, a simple controller. And, and and it showed that you know yeah you know there's no reason why a turn based PC game can't work on a console. You know the fact that it's turn based helps you know, give you the time to react and put in the button inputs that might be slower than a keystroke. Uh, given that JR- uh, JRPGs have such a strong console legacy, I think playing a turn-based on console like really helped it out. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think in the end that coming to console helped us beat one of the things that I know sort of plagued the team with original Sin 1, which was uh, which was being compared to Diablo um, all the time with a game that was nothing like Diablo. Uh, but people looked at the the isometric perspective. They looked at that kind of thing and said, "Oh, this is kind of like Diablo." And I think that uh, uh, coming to console and people seeing what it actually was actually helped uh, open people's minds a little bit to the, "Hey, you can you can be this kind of game um, on a console, and uh, it can work really well." I get people are lazy, but how can anyone <laughs> compare this to Diablo? Just by looking, you know, what I mean, all you have to do is see it run in for action for 30 seconds. And he, it's nothing like Diablo. I mean, how can anybody compare God of War to Dark Souls? It's because it's a simple comparison to a thing that people understand. Yeah. And it, and it comes down to it comes down to the way you market a game, to the way you, you, you describe it to people. You can you can say all the things that you want to, but people will, will make, look at it. They'll take a glance and say, oh, this must be like Diablo because it's top down and you're, you're seeing people run around. Um, and, and that was that that was the thing. Um, what I really, you know, what struck me the first time I was playing it was like, you know, my criticism of the Baldur's Gate and Iceland Dale games were, you know, I really wish combat wasn't real time pause. I would just like turn based combat. 
as you know a D&D system is made for. And I was just looking at that, and I was like, why couldn't have Baldur Gate been like that? Why couldn't have Icewind Dale been like this? I thought it was uh, one of the best expressions of turn-based combat I had played up to that time. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that before that, temp- was was Temple of Elemental Evil maybe the, 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 the game before that that sort of jumps to mind as being most like uh, Original Sin, at least where combat was concerned? Yes, it uh, was. Uh, uh, Temple of Elemental, Elemental Evil was almost a one-for-one direct lift of the, the old Temple of Elemental Evil module um, and that's why, as a game, it had problems, because it had the pacing of a D&D module, but that didn't always work in a video game. But yeah, down down to combat, it was a great translation of the rules. So what I find interesting about Divinity Original Sin is, in so many of these games, you start out as one character that you create, and then you go out and you recruit a, a party of NPCs who are usually scattered around the world, and they join your ever-growing team and you build a team out of them you upgrade them and but you are the preeminent character and maybe you have some relationships with them in this game the first thing you do is you create two characters out at the outset and you can choose from any number of uh, uh classes and abilities and builds at, at the initial outset it's very flexible and then when the game starts uh you are together with your other partner and it is uh, from the outset established as is this is a co-op this is a a partner experience this is a i mean you can play with the ai but it's a kind of a co-op experience and there have been co-op rpgs before certainly but this one really nails it in a lot of respects Uh, i'm curious like what classes did you guys start out with your characters oh gosh well it's because it's more or less a classless system where you start to mix and match when you find the skill books that you like and and that kind of thing. I ended up uh, sort of going with uh, sort of a combo of, I mean, I like being, I like being sort of wizardy and I sort of had, I had this mix of, um, of earth spells, water spells and lightning spells. Um, But there were a few, there were a few other spells that I really liked having like them, you know, vampiric touch. Um, and, and that's, I, I sort of went with that wizardy combo. Um, and I tried to just build it up by getting as many skill books in those particular areas as I can, as I could, um, in part, because as you know, the, the, uh, the elements interact in really interesting ways in, in original sin. And, uh, yeah. And so, and so, and and the nice thing is, once you have a party, then you can have them all doing their own things as well. So uh, you know, I really liked being able to get some water on the ground and, and get a puddle going, and then use electricity to, to zap, which would which would stun enemies. Um, and that that that's always a good trick, and it remained a good trick all through the game. And um, into Divinity Original Sin too, to some extent. It, yeah, indeed. Um, I also like. I mean, I'm and when with all RPGs. I very much like summoning, um, and so I, I always made sure that I summoned a spider into uh, into battle with me in Divinity Original Sin One. Uh, so that that was always a favorite. Which and of course in Original Sin Two, I I, I it was my main character was all uh, conjurer and metamorph stuff um, because then you could go all in in Original Sin Two with that stuff. 
You know, every time I talk to you about RPGs, it just it, it, it's remarkable how similar our tastes are. Because I always wanted to have a summoner, so my first character was a witch, and it's because I wanted that spider and I wanted that vampiric touch. <laughs> and then my second character was a cleric because I, I, I you know, I always want to have someone there who's going to be able to heal me. See, I'm the kind of person who my main character is always either sword and board or. Or like DPS, two-handed sword, um, or a ranger type with a uh, with a bow and arrow. I never, I never go magic for my main character. I, it just feels I don't like being a a mage at all. Even though the mage often is very powerful and has very powerful attacks, but I felt the need to have my support my secondary character be a support character. So I ended up uh, having them be the magic user. So. Well, what's so great about Divinity's Original Sin's combat system is, yeah, you can definitely use the magic with the elemental effects, but there are so many barrels around with oil and barrels with poison and other ways to do that with character skills that you could get around not having a magic user or two around to do that and still take advantage of those elemental affinities. Yeah, that's a huge part of Divinity Original Sin, and I, I guess... I mean, we should talk about that. I mean, one of the things that really makes Divinity Original Sin stand out is it has these, I mean, you can influence the environment in so many different ways. Often what it comes down to is, oh, look, boil a, a barrel of oil. Barrel of oil is now oil, uh, spilling out. You set the oil on fire. Oh, your enemies are now on fire. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's, it's a great trick. And like I said, with the uh, the electricity and the and the water thing it, it it sort of never gets old um hours and hours and, and hours into the game it's it's always fun to pull that stuff off especially then when you're igniting clouds and you've got you know you've got entire you know the entire screen is just filled with with fire and lightning and so on and so forth and and one of one of the ways we approach you know we we approached games then and we we still you know approached original sin 2 is that after a while, the idea of balancing stuff like that sort of, let's just say it's difficult to the point where it stops mattering after a while. We like when people break our games. And because we had so much freedom in terms of your skills and you know how you could level yourself up in all of the surfaces all over around the world, eventually we just you, you just realize that you can break this game in really interesting ways. And sometimes that means you can do really cool things um, with with enemies that normally you'd think would be far more powerful than you. Um, if if you get them stuck in a variety of stuns and blinds and uh, and start moving items around to block them in place and so on and so forth. You can really pull off some interesting tricks, uh, a lot of which we don't even know people are going to try um, when, when making the game. And, and again, one of the great things about Original Sin 1 is, is uh, breaking the game feels good and fun. What was your favorite combo? Oh, one, one of my favorite combos. Um, so, th- so there's this fight in Original Sin 1 that I always remember which is against these enormous titans that come alive on the battlefield when you go and, and you kind of walk in, you see, uh, you know, there's, there's a scene with sort of a spirit. And then when it's, when it's over, these, these huge titan statue type things come to life. And, and when I went into it, I was so underpowered, or at least I thought I was. And uh, what, what ended up 
working was number one, getting oil on the ground and slowing them down. Number two was uh, stunning them at the same time. You know, you, you sort of set up these. Sur- I, I sort of set up these surfaces where it's like, okay, now I can make it rain um, around this area, and I can and I can uh, use lightning um, to 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 get it sizzling. And then when they walk into that, there's a good chance that they're going to be stunned. Um, meanwhile, I'm going to blind this one over here. And then we haven't even talked about the talents. But then the talent that I like getting involved with this is a talent called Leech. Um, because you can you can leech health from enemy blood. And so it it's sort of that combination of just using every way the game gives you to stop your enemy in your tracks combined with uh, this this talent of uh, of like replenishing yourself with with blood um, well both of your enemies and of your own party um, for that matter so that you're sort of getting a little bit of that health boost um, I guess that's not really a combo as much as it's just a a, a way maybe it's a meta combo a, a way that I ended up really enjoying playing because it because it worked so well my my favorite always was was casting a water or rain spell and then chilling it and getting everyone to freeze and then, you know, getting them slowed down. But also um, say enemies were able to avoid that, you know, in that frozen area, they would still come through and then there was a risk that they would slip. I always enjoyed that. So I want to get back to the the co-op element really quickly. Did you guys play with friends or did you play with the computer? I mostly played by myself. Um, the only time I did play co-op was when I was playing with um, my reviewer. I tried to introduce my wife into it because she and I had played Diablo together on console a lot. And we played it for about an hour and she felt it was too slow for her. I tried to get my partner into it as well. And she's like, this is way too complex. Ah, you see, my, my my wife didn't think it was complex, but she just thought it was really slow. As okay. Diablo was her was her comparison point to that. Yeah, it was for her as well. It was like, well, if you like Diablo, maybe we should try this. She's like, uh, this is boring, and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I got a very similar reaction. When you were playing with a uh, PC uh, with an AI partner, did you uh, do the role playing for them, or did you let the computer respond? I, I did the role play as much as I could myself. And Kevin, you let the you, you kind of you were really getting into the role play thing based on your uh, yeah. review. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like that. And of course, there you know you had relationships. You know the relationship between the two of you that you were building um, throughout the game. And uh, I actually role played both. Um, I liked I I liked sort of being able to say, okay, this is this is how I imagine. Um, you know, one character, and this is how I imagine the other. And I sort of played through that way, and even even forcing myself in in into situations where they might disagree or be at each other's throats or whatever, simply because I had ideas about how each one of them would would behave in that in that certain circumstance. I I I'm not much of a min maxer. Um, I'm much more of a role player in that regard. So, uh, I, I, you know, I don't believe in, in, if, if a decision that I make in a dialogue or whatever doesn't work out the way I want, I don't believe in saving and reloading 
that moment. Yeah, I roll with it. I just keep going. I understand that. Yeah, so... But yeah, I definitely believed... Um, I, I definitely role-played everybody, <laughs> basically, in the party, as much as, as much as you could. Of course, you have your two main characters, but eventually you, you bring on two more um, that, that, that come along for the ride. So... The um, the other thing I enjoyed about the role play was I made sure every character I had had the talent to speak to animals. Oh, it's a necessity. You absolutely have to have pet pal. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I talked to every animal I could find, and you know most of the game it didn't do anything, but there were times where it, it actually helped you out. And yeah, I mean we built on that a lot in in the sequel, um, but a lot of the animal conversations in the first game was you know, was, was color, um, more than anything else. But of course, a big thing about original sin is, is how open-ended things can be in terms of how you, how you proceed. Um, so of course, one of the, the, the big quests at the very beginning of the game is a murder mystery, right? And one of the ways that you can sort of help solve the murder mystery is by going to talk to the dog in the graveyard. Um, and, and of course, if you don't have pet pal, you're, you, you've locked yourself out of that. Um, but if you do have pet pal, then you then you have one more path um, to solving this particular murder mystery. Um, and so pet pal, always, always, always you need it. If, if at very least, because chickens have interesting things to say. That always makes me think of uh, the bit from Rick and Morty where Rick uh, Morty gets the ability to talk to animals and then very quickly discovers that, in fact, squirrels run the world. <laughs> Uh, yes, squirrels all uh, along. Morty's mind blowers, which is a great, th- and and of course uh, that's that's one of the ones where uh, Rick and Morty have to abandon uh, the their Earth yet again, presuming that it's a that it's a canon story, which I assume <laughs> that, that it is. Oh, course. it totally is. Uh, <laughs> what did you guys think of the rocks paper scissors debate mechanic? I, I know a lot of people ended up disabling it. I I liked it. um but it's not it's it's so it's one of those things where i i liked having i liked having a mini game that tied to my stats that allowed me to talk my way out of situations um but of course it was a very gamified type thing um we and abandoned um for the sequel um but i rather liked it um simply because there was a you know there was that element of chance it was visualized on screen and uh, you had that sort of XCOM moment where it's like, Oh, it worked. And now, you know, now I can talk to them and I've, I've talked my way out of the situation. And I think that's what I liked about it is sort of that, that gamification of, of uh, the, the, the chance element. I love that. And me too. It, it was, it was the fact that you, you took a way to just, it's, it's not just a random die roll it's something that you had a chance to actually play with a little right and uh i i like that you know i like that but uh we we sort of uh went went in a different direction for the sequel um in part because i think people had mixed reactions to it so and you know i have to ask when, when you're talking about that internally for the sequel was that something that early on you said no we're not going to do it or did it just happen later on i th- i think part of it just came down to the way we the the way all of the dialogue was retooled um, to, to give you an example. So in the first game, of course I wasn't around um, for the first game and I, you know, and in the second I, I started mid development, but uh, in, in the first game, you know, a lot of the writing was done, you know, through, you know, through scripting. 
um, there wasn't a really involved tool um, to, to really keep track of decisions that you had made in dialogue. And, and there wasn't a really good system, for example, you know, like you think of, fall, of Fallout as having as having a system where it's like if you if you meet these requirements, then you have this kind of dialogue option available to you. And that was never that wasn't something that that um, that the technology really allowed in Original Sin One. So with Original Sin Two, you know, suddenly now there's this opportunity to to uh, have much stronger writing and much deeper dialogue systems. And I think with a deeper dialogue system that includes things like um, persuasions in, in the sequel, you sort of lose the need to have the rock, paper, scissors, because now you can actually tie what you're doing to the narrative. You can make it feel more personal and more important than a mini game. And that, 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 that really ended up just being the, the way the, that the sequel went. And I think it, it's the right call. So we talked about uh, the fact that it's a, a co-op RPG and how it handles those mechanics extremely well. We talked about kind of the overall flexibility of the character creation and, and the role-playing, its emphasis on role-playing and that kind of thing. We talked about how cool the, the combat was. But I, I'm curious, we, we always do this for every, RP, uh, for every one of the RPGs on this list. What were your favorite moments in Divinity Original Sin, the ones that really just kind of stand out role-playing moments, uh, battle moments, like just kind of re- reverberate in your mind even now? Well, my favorite, and it, it's, it, it's something that Kevin already touched on, was solving the quest with the doll, which sounds small and it sounds inocu- you know, a little innocuous and it, it, not a really big thing in the world. But the fact that you're sitting there, you're talking to this poor dog and solving the quest through it and acknowledging you know the game was acknowledging the motions of this dog to me it was it was very heartfelt and it, and it moved me and it stayed with me that's, that's a good one um mine actually takes place in the exact same environment um although it's not that same situation and and so one of the things of course that's that's great about original sin 2 and and that the game teaches you early on is that everything you do has a consequence and one of those things is looting. You can't go around just... It, again, it's not Diablo. You can't go around opening chests and thinking everybody's going to be okay with that um, or, or doing whatever. It, it teaches you pretty early on that you can't do things in this game that maybe you can do in other RPGs and get away with it. And so there's this moment in the same damn graveyard. Damn it, Jason, you're always take sucking the wind out of my sails but uh, there's so in that graveyard there's a no it's great because it because it, it's it's a it's a it's it, two good examples so there's there in the graveyard there's a there's this woman that's mourning um over her dead husband she's mourning at his grave as with lots of rpgs you can loot the grave and so i i walked up and not really thinking about how this was going to affect me and how this was going to affect the world. So I'm going to loot the grave, see what's in there. It's got to be something good, right? It's a grave in a graveyard. Um, RPGs have taught me that there's going to be some gold in there or something. So I, I click on the grave and the woman attacks me 
because she's mourning her husband. What am I doing? Looting her grave right in front of her. And of course, she is completely powerless against me. This is just like some civilian standing there mourning her husband. And so I just, I kill her. Like, I just like totally just, you know, combat starts. You do what you do in RPGs. You attack. And and then suddenly like two, two, two slices into her and she's dead. And so it's like, oh, well, that kind of sucked what I just did. Well, at least maybe there's something good in the grave, right? Just so loot the grave, you open it up, and all that's in there is his damn bone. And I love that moment, and I love that story because it really is telling you, you have to think about what you're doing. You have to think about what it's going to mean to the to the NPCs standing around you, what it's going to mean to the game world. And you have to th- you have to think about whether or not the potential reward is going to be worth your risk. And there are a lot of ways the game does that. It could be uh, you don't want to you don't you suddenly don't want a bunch of guards in the armory on on your ass because that truly is a save and reload early in the game. Um, but that moment kind of takes the opposite approach where it's like okay, well this was super easy to accomplish, but what did I get out of it except the misery of knowing that I ruins this woman's emotions by digging up her husband trying to dig up her husband in front of you i killed her in her in her mourning and then i got nothing out of it because obviously what else is going to be in that freshly buried coffin but her husband's bones and that it just that will always be my favorite moment from original sin one um because it it represents a thousand other moments like that strikes me it strikes me that the best rpgs are the ones that make you into unintentional monsters it's like oh i'm a monster what have i done and 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 to me the the best rpgs are also those that the little things and the little parts of the story that have nothing to do with the big overlapping you know quest or this you know saving the world or anything are the ones that stick with you yeah, the little moments. Yeah. So sorry, my story's so long. It's just that I, I love that moment, and it's always my go-to story with Original Sin One, and why why it's so special. So, w- what was your consequence? Did anyone come up to attack you later, or say you know you you, you just spoiled the grave? Because I never did that. As far as I remember, there's no long-term consequence. Um, yeah, it, it pretty pretty much. Um, but it's also a really good teachable moment. Um, for, for whoever's playing, it's like, you know, think, think again about what you're doing. Um, but, it, but, it, but it also, I think is, is a great representation of how a systemic can be emotional in a game as opposed to, you know, we, we often think about emotional things in games, um, as story moments that, you know, somebody says something sad um, and you're talking to somebody and you get to know them and, you know, in mass effect, you spend, you know, how much time getting to know people and then bad things happen and you feel sad about that. But, but a lot of that's done through dialogue, right. And, and through your interactions in this case, this is a systemic, um, that that's leading to this, this situation where, where, uh, you know, there's, there are things like who owns the grave and how close are they and, and and so on and so forth. How do how do people react to crimes in the world? Um, and it's and it's one of those. It's just like okay, this is how somebody's going to react to a crime in the world. This is the crime you commit. 
Um, the loot table says that this is what's supposed to be down in that grave and that's it. It, you know, and you know, uh, uh, something that's systemic in the game, that's not really written with a dialogue. That's not written with the, uh, you know, something get you get, you know, somebody you've gotten to know over time. You just, you did a shitty thing and you have to face yourself through the systemics as opposed to anything that the game, you know, anything that a writer tried to tell you you were supposed to feel. So you went, so. you actually, as I mentioned, you actually went to Larian Studios and worked on Divinity Original Sin 2. Did working yeah. on Divinity Original Sin 2 give you any kind of fresh insight into the original game? Uh, yes, um, actually, in, in the sense that um, how much work they had to do without having a really full-fledged dialogue editor... Spoiler um, alert! For, doing for, uh, making RPGs is a lot of work. It's a it's a lot of work indeed. Um, but I but I think I, I think again it, it gave me a lot of insight into into who a storyteller is at a develop at a development studio. Um, we usually think about the people you know that are writing the words and creating the characters and you know, crafting a plot and this is what happens. We often think of those people as the storytellers, but I, but we, we, what we don't realize is that it's, 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 you know, it's the scripters who are also the storytellers and it's the artists who are the storytellers. Um, and it's programmers who are also storytellers and so on and so forth. Everybody that has a hand in the game is a storyteller in a game like original sin one. And I think that's, that's the thing I, maybe that I didn't, you know, grow to learn more about original sin one as much as I've grew to, to appreciate more about original sin one is just how much storytelling was done by people that never actually wrote a word of dialogue. All right. And so uh, obviously divinity original sin has kind of stuck around uh, stuck in our collective memory has not been forgotten and it was good enough to get to warrant a sequel, which was in many respects uh, even better. So what exactly the final thoughts what do you think really makes divinity original sin like so special uh, i'll start with you jason well for me it comes down to three ways uh, the way you build your character really it, it is different than the norm for turn-based rpgs uh, the way you can borrow from so many different things and go down so many different paths it's you're not just set on one path for building your character the second is the combat um, not only is the, the turn base just feel good, but it's the, what we talked about, how you can use so many different elements and combine so many different abilities and spells and talents together that you can come up with really different and clever ways to handle a puzzle um, that's set as a, you know, a combat as a puzzle as opposed to just going in there and killing everything. Uh, you, you might find out that there's some, exp you know, there's this one fight I remember where you've got these guys who explode when they die but if, if i remember right if you freeze them in a certain way in a certain manner you can just pretty much nullify that when they die and they don't explode um and the third thing is the little moments the game is peppered with so many little moments that show you that in this world your actions could reach so many different people but at the same time the, these little moments remind you that all the people who are living in this world are actually have lives that are there. Uh, everything Jason said, um, but to, to throw <laughs> in two things, I think one, well, one is, one is humor. Um, I think it's difficult to be funny in games and I think, and, and, you know, original sin two has plenty of funny moments. 
Um, but Original Sin 1 came much more in the line of Divine Divinity um, in the sense that it's cheeky a lot of the time. And I think that's a sometimes it's a lost art in games. And I think Original Sin 1 is cheeky. And that comes across in a lot of really cool ways. And the other thing is, is I think that it's, it's dense in just the right way, meaning the density of gameplay. Um, in a, at a time when we're so enamored, um, even then with, with open worlds and how much space there is and, and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, one of the things I love about original sin one is that it's dense, that it's not about how much space, but it's a, how it's about how many cool things are available to you to do in one single screen on, on, you know, right, right there in front of you. And, uh, I think that's, uh. I think that's an asset um, that we don't often talk about in RPGs. We like we like our big open spaces, um, but sometimes having a nice dense world um, that's about uh, filling all the spaces with really neat stuff is pretty great too. Sure. All right, so that's Divinity: Original Sin number twenty on our top twenty-five RPG list. Make sure to check out the companion piece that we'll have on the site on Wednesday, and of course, check out all of the other RPG podcasts and companion pieces that are also on the site uh jason where can we find you and plug something for me well you can find me at GameSpeed, which is the video game channel for the business tech blog venture beat you can also find me on twitter at jason underscore wilson at venturebeat.com and i'm gonna plug my new column it's called the d20 beat uh it's about role-playing games of course it's about video games but it's also about any sort of digital realm that tabletop games can come into uh for example the initiative that uh, Dungeons & Dragons just did, bringing back an old campaign world, is uh, all digital right now. The books, there's going to be no printed books at the moment. It's all just on a um, on the DM Skilled store. And so I wrote about that and, you know, the value that digital could bring to bring back these old worlds. And so I'll be talking about streaming. I'll be talking about digital components of the games, uh, ways people find to play tabletop games electronically, and of course, video game roleplay. And Kevin, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at uh, FiddleCub is one easy way to find me. Um, and I'm always tweeting all the time, as you probably know. Uh, so, that's, so, so that's always fun. And of course, in August, um, you get to uh, play the definitive, the definitive edition of uh, Divinity Original Sin 2. Um, which is, of course, something I think everybody should play. Um, and I, I forgot that's coming in August. Yeah. Um, and um, something worth noting, so of course we're coming out on Xbox One, and we're coming out on PS4, but we're also coming out on PC, and if you already own Divinity Original Sin 2, um, you automatically get uh, the Definitive Edition, uh, including the pre-order bonus of Sir Laura, who is uh, a squirrel that joins you on your adventure and uh, is not just a little cosmetic pet. He'll have things that that he'll have to say um, to you. Um, But the definitive edition really is a definitive edition. Um, There's lots more going on in the game. Um, A retooled third act. Um, And I just, I just can't wait for everybody to, to play it. All right, Kevin, uh, enjoy gallivanting around 
Europe and working on uh, Divinity Original Sin. We're going to move on to the mailbag. Okay, continuing on to our mailbag. Last week, we talked about the World of Warcraft, which was number 21 on our list of the top 25 RPGs. And here's what you guys had to say. Satellite of Love says, World of Warcraft is relevant as ever after nearly 14 years for a month every year or two. Oh, okay. I mean, that is fair. People go away for a long time and then come back much later. But I would say that a lot of people are still playing World of Warcraft on the regular. I, I don't think that it's a case of, oh, this game is totally irrelevant except for that once every couple years. I mean, people are still thinking about it. It's still one of the preeminent MMORPGs. Funktron says, I don't play WoW, but I agree it should be on the list. It's been too big of a cultural phenomenon to not show up here. Be like talking about the top 25 sci-fi TV series and somehow not even mentioning Star Trek. But it's been around for so long that it'd be willful blindness to not even include it. As for Vampire the Masquerade, it sounded really cool. I have literally nothing else to add. I didn't even know there was an RPG till the podcast. And then they add, this is blasphemy, I'm sure, but I actually hope that Chrono Trigger isn't number one on your list. It should be on the list. It's IMO, the pinnacle of a certain style of RPG. It's a fantastic game, but I hate that RPGs peaked 20 plus years ago. I, I gotta say that even if a game is number one on this list, it does not mean that RPGs peaked. It's just that that game is a really, truly amazing and wonderful example of what an RPG can be, that it is truly, in so many ways, stood the test of time. I mean, if you look at the game that we talked about today, Divinity Original Sin, it's such a different flavor of RPG from Chrono Trigger that in some ways it it's just really hard to, I don't know, uh, talk about these games in or, or compare them or rank them. I mean, they have similarities and everything. They come from the same historical roots. But when it comes down to it, you get so many different types of different RPGs that in, in some ways this top 25 RPG countdown is less about this number 20 is definitely better than number 21. It's more about saying, yeah, these are Here's the definitive list of 25 RPGs that have stood the test of time, and you gotta play them right here. But of course, I would say that the top 10 on this is perhaps, uh, maybe holds more weight than the other games. But okay, moving on. Uh, Victorgo Bend says, I honestly don't think I've ever experienced a cutscene in WoW. To be fair, I don't think I've ever leveled a tune past maybe level 40, but still, when, when do they happen? Where? What am I supposed to be doing? Oh, there's definitely a cutscene in, I, I think it was Cataclysm, with uh, the Worgans. So, I mean, there's an example right there. Uh, Gamer Law says, with some of the unique choices that have made the top 25 list thus far, I'm hoping, holding out hope that we'll see infinite space in there. Very interesting little game. I'm, I think, highly underrated. I deeply wish that it would come out on PC. Yeah, it's just, I, I would love an infinite space to on console and PC, or on the Switch. I mean, that game had a lot of big and interesting ideas, but it might have actually been too big for the Nintendo DS. Uh, Satellite of Love says, only 2% of people saw Illidan. That's the problem there. They phrased it like that, and it lodged like an ice pick in people's brains. But I'm missing out. And that perception and the molding of the game's new forms at best, a breeding ground for raw, naked envy at worst. The game diverged in that horrible direction from the original goals, and perception of pre-release vanilla and BC. Back then, there was a sort of unofficial debate upon ease versus gating. 
punishment versus reward, etc., but no demands were seriously expected to be adhered to. If something was found that removed an old pacing mechanic and it worked, it was put in. Old dungeons and raids were nerfed with new dungeons and raids because those older ones are now no longer the hot, new, scary places, but stepping stones to the new, hot, new, scary places. The nerf this boss, now, k-thanks from players, and the incredibly evil and shoddy tuning of launch uh, Burning Crusade's later raids did not gain traction from the other side one bit. Now, however, it's less, far less an informal contract. It's treated and perceived as informal bribery, which didn't happen before 2.0, and it shows in the player base's behavior, less interaction, less teamwork, less engagement, more demands, more expectations. MOBAs, BRs, and other gas genres. I don't know what this, the heck you mean by that. I gobble up both the elite seeking glory and the rank and file players as there's no rush to inhale all those ASAP to not miss out and then crash out as my previous post alludes to. Man, those were a lot of words <laughs> that were going on. <laughs> you clearly have deep and strong feelings about this topic, though. Satellite of love. Uh, Rider Kicker says, I hope Mike gets to have coffee and chicken as often as he wants, despite the MMORPG utility fee. <laughs> yeah, that, that utility fee, that's the reason that I didn't play MMORPGs in college, because I was like, $15 a month? No one can live at that speed. And now everybody has Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and NFL Sunday Ticket and God knows how many other subscriptions. It's an evil process. Uh, World of Warcraft really led the way. Saga games always have great music. At least that's what I heard in the Retronauts episode. But I still don't like the UI design that much. All that text is hiney. I thought this was a hell and hell JRPG. Okay. So that is it for our mailbag. If you want to contribute, make sure to go to our show notes on usgamer.net or drop me a line at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. Occasionally, I get emails and I really enjoy hearing from them. Okay. Axe of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. And make sure to check out Hearing Cryer. He is at Hearing Cryer. That's H-I-R-U-N-C-R-Y-E-R. Thanks so much to him for coming on the show to talk about Banner Saga 3. And, of course, go and check out his review, which is up on the site next week. We're going to have uh, Jeremy back on the show to talk about his history of RPG series. And, of course, we're going to continue on with our Top 25 RPG Countdown, which will continue on to number 19. We're moving right along with this countdown. But until then, for Hiran and Kevin and Jason and myself, I've been Cat Bailey. And until next time, happy adventuring.